Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. In our last episode, we covered Galen Clark's childhood, his early years, his journey west, first to Missouri and then to California. After that, we looked at his beginnings in the Mariposa area, his move to the mountains, and his involvement with the protection and eventual appointment as the guardian of Yosemite and the Mariposa Grove. Today, we're going to continue his story by digging deeper into his time at Yosemite. While Galen likely had ideas for how he might do his job as guardian, the commissioners made it clear what the job would entail in the eight-page list of instructions. An example uh, from this list would be, no Indians were allowed to break off branches of oak trees. These are rules for everyone, though, including tourists who were coming in increasing numbers. One of the first issues that needed to be dealt with were the people who arrived and claimed land within the now-protected area. The edict from the commission was simple, lease or leave. Many of the landholders were sued by the commission and then fought back with their own countersuits, which led Galen's salary to being blocked. During all of this fighting, Clark continued to accumulate land himself and give tours of the area, including to the likes of the Speaker of the House, as well as the Vice President under Andrew Johnson. During 1867 and 1868, Clark supervised a number of infrastructure projects in the valley, including a bridge at the base of Bridalvale Falls, and another one across from Vernal Falls. These were big improvements for visitors to the park. But, in spite of these efforts to make the areas more accessible, there were waves of criticism that were launched against the commission and Clark himself, because campers wanted to treat the park like any other land in the West, open to manipulation. Also, during this time, there were a series of particularly strong storms that Clark was forced to deal with and address. The job of Guardian of Yosemite turned out to be a highly political and essentially thankless job, which in many ways was in stark contrast to how he was treated before as effectively having the same job but with an honorary title. But a lot would change when Yosemite received an important visit in the spring of 1868. John Muir's first visit to the Sierras took place in the April of 1868. Like Clark before him, Muir found his path to California through a need to improve his health, but just the same way fell in love with the landscape. Like many travelers after exploring Yosemite, Muir found his way to Clark Station, where he immediately fell in with Clark, a couple of like-minded souls sharing their love of one natural landscape. They soon began to take trips together to places like Hetch Hetchy and Mount Lyell, where Muir interest transferred from health concerns to the protection of natural beauty. One thing that they diverged on and likely argued about was the theory as to how Yosemite was formed. Before, Josiah Whitney had argued that the valley was formed through a cataclysmic event, which does make some sense if you look at it. In contrast, Clark believed a kind of inverted theory where the pressure of subterranean gases caused a kind of bursting upward, creating the peaks that we see there now. Muir, somewhere in the middle, famously guessed that it was in fact something that pushed above ground through the middle of the rock, which is glaciers. Now, in spite of these disagreements that Clark had with Muir, they remained good friends. The year 1869 was a pivotal year for the Pacific Coast. That year, the final spike in the Transcontinental Railroad was hammered into place. 
The railroad was the harbinger and delivery system to bring in the flood of tourists to California, and specifically to Yosemite. Hotels began to expand in preparation, and sure enough, tourism exploded, doubling in just a year before and after the railroad was completed. Clark turned out to be not the best hotel proprietor, focusing more on his duties as protector of Yosemite and not taking full advantage of the financial opportunities that were available to him because of the increased visits to the park. One common refrain of Eastern tourists was the lack of viable roads through Yosemite. Many wealthy visitors expected accessible paths to the views that they had been promoted in art and in newspapers, only to discover the unrefined raw west. As a result of this feedback, Galen, with a few compatriots, organized a turnpike company, which is a private road building company. These are the days before publicly financed roads. The roads, instead, would have to be funded through tolls. In 1870, Clark's son, Galen Alonzo, came to visit him in Yosemite Valley to see what had come of his father's enterprise. And like his father's reasons for traveling, Galen Alonzo's reasons was also to better his health. Alonzo, which is what I will refer to him from now on, had graduated from Harvard in the middle of his class and had been a clerk during the Civil War. His journey was eventful, going west, being robbed aboard a Mississippi steamboat. He reached his father on August 5th, but we don't have any accounts of this initial meeting. We do later get a written assessment by Alonzo on August 23rd, where he indicated that his father's health was good, but was generally dissatisfied with the way that Clark Sr. was running his hotel. He pointed out to his father that he was employing too many people who ate too much of their stock, and all of this resulted in too much debt. Alonzo's mood changed, though, as his father took him into nature, where he shared the same sense of awe that inspired Clark Sr. and was now inspired in his son. Not long after his first foray into the park, Galen asked his son to guide a party of travelers, included, including the son of Charles Darwin. Over the course of time with his father, Alonzo developed a rapport and a business relationship. He was able to leverage the skills he had developed as a clerk to support his father's struggling enterprise, with one of the first and most immediate tasks to reduce overhead, which translated into staff reductions. One of the major events that happened during this period was the tremendous earthquake that occurred on March 26, 1872. It caused a series of rock slides in the park. John Muir, who was in the park at the time, witnessed Eagle Rock crashing down, something of which there is still debate as to its original location. Galen wrote about the effects of the earthquake in the California Farmer, a periodical in California, noting in particular the damage to Snow's Hotel. Meanwhile, amidst these number of issues, Clark had not been paid for his duties as guardian of Yosemite since 1867, nearly five years, and was owed more than $2,000. The commission was frustrated with the whole situation, bemoaning both their lack of money and the lack of roads into the park. Galen did, in fact, give one company permission to build a road from the valley rim to the floor. One new feature that Galen added to the valley was a wagon that he had hauled in and had reassembled on which tourists could receive free rides initially around the valley of the park. By this point, Alonzo had grown frustrated with the operations in the hotel and was eager to move to San Francisco. 
One thing that did keep him managing the hotel was the constant flow of notable guests, including the brother-in-law of Queen Victoria, Grace Greenwood, and Joaquin Miller, who was the subject of a previous episode. Eventually, Alonzo put together enough money, partially from settling an estate, to make the move to San Francisco, where he went to work for a gas company. Eventually, Alonzo migrated to Merced for a clerk job, where he unfortunately contracted an illness that would eventually kill him. He did manage to make it to his father's place before he passed away, in spite of a terrible winter storm. He was ultimately buried in Mariposa, and this loss left a large impact on Clark himself. Life in Yosemite, though, kept moving on, with an increasing number of tourists growing all the time. In 1873, Clark's daughter, Elvira, who had come west to be with her father like Alonzo, married a Merced doctor. The marriage was greatly beneficial for Elvira, as her husband had a successful practice that enabled her to pursue her interests in comfort. Meanwhile, in contrast, the state was not, still not giving Clark the money he needed to operate effectively, and he spent the winter in Sacramento in 1873 lobbying for additional funds to build two roads, one to Yosemite and one to the big trees. The bill was designed as a solution to this problem, but like times in the past, it again failed. The following year brought big changes to Clark's life. First, he got remarried to a woman named Isabella F. Pierce. Isabella was from Spain, and they were married by a close minister friend of Clark's in Sacramento. Their marriage, however, is a bit of a mystery to both biographers and people present at the time. What is known about Isabella is sparse. We do know that she was from Spain, as we mentioned before, was married before, given her surname, and she was also a fortune teller of some kind. There are some pictures of her that appear later on, but beyond that, little is known. The second big change was the sale of Clark's Hotel. A family known as the Washburns, who made small fortunes in stores and mines, bought Clark's Hotel, seeing that better management could improve the profitability and make it into a thriving business. This meant an end for Clark's involvement in the development of the South Fork area right outside Yosemite. After 1884, this area would come to be known as Wawona. The Clarks moved into Yosemite Valley in the middle of a fight over a dispute among settlers about how much they should be compensated for the land they claimed to have settled. Galen was then appointed as the special deputy sheriff of Yosemite, anticipating that there would be issues requiring law enforcement. In 1874, the California legislature appropriated $60,000 for the land that they were taking from the settlers to pay them for it. Not everyone agreed with the numbers that they were given in compensation. Some put up a fight, some threatened litigation, while others went peaceably, took their money, and found somewhere else to settle. Aside from these bigger issues, Galen's life, not that he was in, now that he was in the park for the full time, was made up of mundane things like bears eating campers' food, questions about where things were and why, for example, the falls weren't running, disputes over whether tourists were getting stiffed at hotels, etc. When he wasn't helping people around the park or acting as a mediator in the middle of disputes, Galen also made rounds to maintain the respective trails and roads around the park and to give help or advice to the laborers working on them. Two exciting things happened in the park around this time. First, 
The stage road, where you could take stage coaches from South Fork to Yosemite, was finally opened. While the idea for the road, as well as the planning, surveying, organizing, lobbying, and much more, were all the work of Galen, much of the glory went to the men that finally carried these ideas through to the finish line. Galen himself didn't even get an opportunity to speak at the celebration event that coordinated with the opening of the road. The other major event was the achievement of a Scotsman named George C. Anderson, who risked his life to hammer in the eye bolts to Half Dome's backside. James Hutchings, a writer and resident of Yosemite Valley, described Anderson's first successful attempt at the mountain in his book, The Heart of the Sierras. I quote, The knowledge that the feat of climbing this grand mountain had on several occasions been attempted, but never with success, begat in Anderson an irrepressible determination to succeed in such an enterprise. Imbued with this incentive, he made his way to its base, and, looking up its smooth and steeply inclined surface, at once set about the difficult exploit. Finding that he could not keep from sliding with his boots on, he tried it in his stocking feet, but as this did not secure triumph, he tried it barefooted and was unsuccessful still. Then he tied sacking upon his feet and legs, but as they did not secure the desired object, he covered it with pitch, obtained from pine trees near. And although this enabled him to adhere firmly to the smooth granite and effectually prevented him from slipping, a new difficulty prevented itself in the great effort required to unstick himself when came near proving fatal sometimes. Mortified by failure of all of his plans hitherto, yet in no way discouraged, he procured drills and a hammer with some iron eye bolts and drilled a hole in the solid rock. Into this he drove a wooden pin and then an eye bolt, and after fastening a rope to the bolt, pulled himself up until he could stand upon it, and thence continued that process until he had finally gained the top, a distance of 975 feet. All the honor then to the skillful and intrepid mountaineer George Anderson, who, defying and overcoming all obstacles and at the peril of his life, accomplished that in which all others had signally failed, and thus became the first to plant his foot upon the exalted crown of the great half-tome." After this first successful attempt, Anderson installed support so he could lead other people up the backside of half-tome as well. James Hutchings' daughter, Cozy, went up with Anderson, and here is her particular description. All along the old plank walk between Hutchings' old corral to Sentinel Dome, Anderson stretched five separate strands of bailing rope, a soft, loose fiber rope about the thickness of a lead pencil, but strong and easy to use. With another strand, he went along the 975-foot length, knotting the five strands together with a sixth strand and a good sailor's knot a foot apart, a convenient space for climbers to grasp as they made the ascent. The knotted rope was coiled, tied together, put on a pack mule, and carried to the shoulder of Half Dome. Here, Anderson shouldered himself, packed it to the top of Dome, unloosened it, fastened one end to an iron pick on the rock on the summit, and slid it down, uncoiling and fastening it to other iron pin eye bolts he had placed on his first ascent. End quote. As more people showed up to the park, campgrounds became more and more necessary. The Yosemite commissioners set up a campground area that was free to tourists near the Iwani Hotel stands today. 
1879, Ulysses S. Grant visited, and Galen took him around to show him the sights and the progress in the valley. Throughout his time, Galen was viewed as a gentle protector of the valley, amiable, friendly, and approachable. He rarely received criticism, and in spite of all of the challenges that he faced in losing credit, not getting paid, losing his son, and much more, he maintained a positive attitude about his mission in the park. Next time, we will conclude our story of Galen Clark, Guardian of Yosemite.